Let's talk with Trent R. Nelson. We've got a wonderful guest for you this morning. They are someone who knows a bit about nature, and of course I'm being a bit sly there. They know more than a bit about nature. Alfie and Me is by Dr. Carl Safina. He's an ecologist with SUNY Stony Brook, and I could give a quick synopsis, but I wouldn't want to ruin any of the fun that we're about to have on this chat. Such a pleasure to have you on this morning, Doctor. Okay, well, thank you. I hope we do have a lot of fun here today. Oh, so all I do is have fun. So I presume that you'll be doing that with me. And and we'll jump right in. If you would give our audience perhaps your own version of my quick biography, anything that I might have missed, anything that you'd like to highlight specifically, and then we can get into how you came to write this wonderful book. Okay. I have, for my entire career, has been involved mostly with studying wild animals and writing about wild animals. For about 10 years, I studied seabirds and birds of prey. Then I got into, mostly because of the results of my seabird studies, I got into fisheries policy reform, trying to stop the depletion of what's going on in the oceans. I worked on that for quite a while. I wrote several books about how the oceans are changing and what those changes mean for the wildlife and the people of the sea. And uh, the last few books of mine have been about the human relationship with the rest of life on Earth. The last couple of books have started to narrow in not just on kinds of wild animals, but on specific individual wild animals that researchers have gotten to know. Or in the case of this last book, Alfie and Me, one particular screech owl named Alfie that I got to know very, very well. And, and that is brilliant, sir, and we thank you for your decades of dedication. One does not become a Pew MacArthur or Guggenheim Fellow or cooperating participant for no reason. And again, we appreciate your hard work and dedication here. Thank you. Absolutely. Now, I grew up both on Long Island as well as with farm animals, uh, with ducks and goats and chickens and pheasants and alpaca and all sorts of fun stuff. So hearing you speak about the human connection brings joy to me personally, in a personal as well as a professional manner, because I always tell people, just spend time with animals and then try to deposit that they are somehow less than humans. And I think it's difficult. The, the emotional connection that you can develop with creatures is, uh, is absolutely remarkable. Yes, I, I agree with that. So how did you meet Alfie? Alfie was found near death on a lawn as a little tiny chick and was rescued by a homeowner. Then wildlife rehabilitator was called that's somebody that I knew, and I did a lot of wildlife rehabilitation work myself. And the longer story short is that the idea for releasing this young one, assuming she survived, which she she was surviving, the idea for releasing her was that she would be released in my backyard in what's called a soft release, which is basically take a young animal as they get to the age where they would normally disperse, they're just allowed to disperse normally, which would no would normally entail for a young owl that they would be leaving the nest and wandering around 
a little bit short distances be backed up by their parents who would still feed them for a while until they just dispersed from the territory. So that was the plan and the plan was delayed. She had a flight delay because I think I think due to the fact that she was in such bad shape when she was found and she was near death, the feathers on her wings that would let her fly did not come in properly for a long time. So if I had just let her flop around in the yard, probably would have been killed by a cat in about one night. And so we kept her through a mold to make sure that those feathers were going to come in well and that she could fly. And then I was afraid to just open the door and let her go because it was not going to be soft release or a slow release anymore. You know, my fear was that she would just take off and would no backup experience that she would starve. So I had a lot of worry and a lot of trepidation about that. Well, you know, that is just to have a quick interlude for a moment. We know that nature functions in this very calculating manner, this ambiguous, right? This sort of, if it it lives, it lives. If it dies, it dies. Yet we, even knowing that, are often incapable of not doing the human thing. It reminds me of We had a goat that was uh, near death, and her name ended up being Miracle because she was warmed back up, and her heart kept going, and we saved baby duck coming out of a shell that the mother had abandoned. It's those types of things that allow for us to play with the mechanics of life to some degree. Well, I mean, I, I I would say that's true. I have a slightly added perspective, maybe I'll say, please, which is that all living things do their best to stay alive. There are no other living things that try to hurt themselves or want to kill themselves except troubled human beings. Everything else tries to stay alive. Humans have caused enormous trouble and destruction for essentially every other thing that lives on Earth. Almost all wild animal populations are at their historic lows because of the explosion of humans. The human population has tripled in my life. Vast habitats have fallen and been destroyed. Since I was in high school, North America has lost about one-third of its birds. There are about a billion fewer birds on this continent. To find one little creature in distress a little creature that would do its best to survive, there was really not any question than to try to help it. Right, of course. We are the most dangerous of all the animals. It goes without saying. We're We're the most compassionate and the most destructive and the cruelest all at the same time. All yes, Voltaire time. Voltaire is, is somewhere laughing right now, if he's listening. You are absolutely 1,000% correct. And again, Dr. Carl Safina, we are so happy to have you on with us. Let's talk with Trent R. Nelson, talking about animals and talking about the human animal. So, Doctor, at this point, we've given Alfie more time to acclimate, to, to feel comfortable. So what happens next? I did a little training trying to show her how to hunt by pulling a fake mouse on a string with food attached. And, you know, the chasing is instinctive, but the catching requires development of skill and motor control and all of those things. Really, you know, at first it was not much of a decision because if I didn't hold her, she would have just gotten killed. Right. Now the decision was, Do I keep her safe or do I let her face all the dangers and uncertainties of free living life? That was a harder decision, but in a way it was also a no-brainer because an owl that's just kept 
safe is just a bird in a cage. You know, we in our personal lives, we try to stay alive. We try to be safe, but we don't try to be as safe as possible. We don't just stay in our bed all the time. We go out and we face some of the risks and some of the uncertainties because that's what life is. I wanted her to have a real shot at life. And so we decided to leave the door open and let her go. She did what I most feared. She disappeared right away. I was worried, of course, that she would starve. I assumed I would never see her again. And then a week later, I was away on a trip and my wife texted me one night saying, guess who's back? She was gone for a week. We were leaving food out. She wasn't taking the food, so she was not around. She went somewhere, but she decided to come back, and she has never left, and that was five years ago. It's just been a really amazing relationship that we have with her because she remains tame to us, but she acts like a perfectly normal wild owl. In the book, Alfie and Me, she acquires a, a wild mate. They raise three young ones and the young ones go off as, you know, completely normally with no interference by us. And the book pretty much ends after her first brood. What happened after that was that she had a second brood with the same mate the next year. Then something happened to the mate. He did not return in 2022. She had no mate. She laid eggs, but they were not fertile. So she raised no young. That was really distressing for me to see because she sat on those eggs longer than if they had been fertile. Of course. But then this year she had a new mate, a new mate with a really different personality. And this is the other thing about trying to get to understand individual wild animals and see them as individuals. He had a really different personality. We think he's still around because we hear another owl. We see her a lot. We see her numerous times a week. And so sometimes we see her practically every night for weeks at a stretch. So it's been a very, very interesting journey. And she really has opened a new window of the world for me and a deeper understanding of who these creatures are, what they try to accomplish with their own lives, which, you know, in the broad arc of their lifetime is similar to what all things do. They try to stay alive. They take care of their young ones, keep them healthy and safe so that they can go out in the world. And she has raised 10 chicks now. And that is the arc of a lifetime. And that's the same that it is for, you know, all living beings and people as well. You know, most people, the main thing in their life is they've raised a family and they've contributed to the great chain of being. And Dr. Carl Safina, we are so, that is such a brilliant story. Alfie and Me is a wonderful read for those listeners who are interested. I had the pleasure of reading it, of checking it out. It is simply beautiful. It is a story that could well remind us that the divisions we create are really only our own. Life is, as you said, doctor, searching for purpose, for meaning, for joy, for togetherness, for mutuality. And we make these distinctions oftentimes, I wager, to rationalize our own treatment of animals or of nature. What lessons did Alfie teach you over this year's long journey? Well, for, I guess the main lesson is that really all living things really are one family, one family of life, and that our similarities completely overwhelm the differences, and the, the differences are really very, very minor among all living things compared to non-living things and the whole rest of the known universe. Living things are very much all related. We know that factually. She helped me to really see it and experience it and feel it. The, the fact that 
she can want to come over and be near me. Even when I know she has already eaten and she's not hungry, she'll fly out of the night sometimes and just want to be near me. She'll enjoy a little bit of a head scratch, which I will enjoy giving her. And the fact that our two nervous systems and our emotional systems can both enjoy sharing the same thing in the same moment is really, you know, I would say it's remarkable. On the other hand, one of the most remarkable things about it is that, that can, that's surprising to us. Because exactly. They, they've always been that way since way before there were any humans on the planet, and, and that's the world we came into, and yet we, we are strangers in our own world. Our, as Cicero once noted, the second nature that we've created inside of nature has to varying degrees separated us. But yes, it's always our discoveries about animals are only that which we are realizing. As you noted, they are not new. They're only new to us because we've conceived now that prairie dogs have a language that they speak or that bees feel feelings. You know, all of these things that I would suspect have given us the means by which to dominate them. It all falls apart when we hang out and spend time and get to know them as individuals. Do, would you say that our collective stance appraising animals as this sort of homogenous block instead of as individuals has contributed to our surprise, to our mindset of almost that they're machines to some degree? Well, yes, but that's only because we've been told that they were machines, that people like Descartes and Bacon literally right. told that they were machines, and that has continued until actually very recently. Richard Dawkins says that they are machines. That's a bizarre thing, because they're not machines. They're, they're as much machines as we are, because we are animals. All of this came out of a particular kind of teaching that was peculiar to Western civilization. The, all the indigenous people of the world had intuited and observed for many thousands of years. I mean, those people existed for a couple of hundred thousand years before Western civilization. And they intuited that we are all related. Their myths and their stories are of relation. Animals that are not humans helping to bring humans into this world, that animals did that. That's their story. Our story is that we came from outside this world. A lot of this depends entirely on the peculiar story that was constructed in the West. And this, this idea of seeing other animals as just one thing or as machines is not something that was seen in any other culture for all of antiquity until this peculiar story that arose in the West. And the Western story has come to basically dominate the world. The Western values that come out of that story, our devaluation of the living world, has come to dominate the world in the form of our monetary economy. The, the whole world has a, a westernized, globalized economy in which nature, natural resources, the living world, and the future are all explicitly devalued, which has brought about the catastrophe that we are seeing, okay. where essentially all living things in the world are at their lowest population levels, most polluted, most degraded in, human, in the history of human existence. 
as exemplified, the destabilization as exemplified by the, the destabilized climate, the incredible fires, rage and rage because everything is hotter and drier than it was supposed to be, all of these things. They all result from our total devaluation of the rest of the world, thinking that we're the only thing that matters. Absolutely. Absolutely agree, doctor. Let's talk with Trent R. Nelson. Dr. Carl Safina here, ecologist, SUNY Stony Brook, speaking to us about Alfie and me. It, it strikes me, sir, what you just noted there. The Western idea, right, this, this sort of Christianic idea that the world, Judeo-Christian really, that the world was given unto us to use as a resource, right, as a palette. It differs very much from the, you know, monist view that dominated much of the East, that, as you noted, we all were sort of sharing collective conscious in individual moments, which we call lifetimes. And you can see how the two diverging schools of thought on humanity's place within the world certainly creates issues, it creates moments that have changed the entire world. All the animals, us, the chief changing animal. It's one of domination instead of cooperation. And Yes, that's, that's exactly right. One of dualistic, you use the word monistic, yes. dualistic thinking instead of relational thinking, or the idea that the diversity creates the unity of the world. We have a dualist thing that says that it's always us against them, man against nature, which implies man against woman, me, me against you, a competitive rather than a cooperative, rather than coexisting relational view of the world, which many other cultures in their antiquities had. And you mentioned the Judeo-Christian ethic, but the Judeo-Christian ethic did not come from nowhere. It came mostly from the Platonist school of Greek philosophy, meaning it was Plato's idea that the world is a, is a bad place and that perfection exists in a place outside of space and time, and that the world was created by a thing, which he called the divine crafter. In the Judeo-Christian ethic, those things became heaven and God. That was the origin of those ideas denigrated the world, made us be taught to yearn for death and an existence that would follow our physical death in a perfect place that is outside of the world and outside of space and time, which we call heaven in that tradition. Now, if I'm not incorrect, I believe you just referenced what they used to call the logos in Greek, this sort of creating force that is between God and what would eventually be known as Christ. No, absolutely. We love Plato here on our talk programs, but we read him a little bit more liberally than much of antiquity has. Dr. Carl Safina, we could spend literally hours speaking with you. Such a pleasure to have you on. Alfie and me, the relationship between humans and individuals, individual animals. We are individual animals, 
perhaps we should stop signifying that we are somehow different than other individual animals. I appreciate you coming on and, and speaking to us. Is there anything else that you'd like to tell our audience before we let you go and enjoy the rest of your day? Yeah, I think I just want to say one thing about what you just said, that, you know, we should stop thinking that we're different. We are different. We should celebrate the differences and stop thinking that we're better than the other beings and the other people who are different from us. That's how I am trying to see it and I am trying to live. You heard it here first, folks. Celebrate all of the beautiful differences that humanity has, but celebrate all of the wonderful differences that life, the very beautiful means in which it illustrates itself, how life, vibrant life, is wonderful and different and should be celebrated in those ways. Dr. Carl Safina, Alfie and me, you are absolutely the best, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're a really good interviewer, obviously a very passionate soul, and I really appreciate that. We are humbled by those kind words, sir. Let's talk with Trent R. Nelson. Go make a friend in your backyard.